Shachtan, an Indo Askelige. Time in Mon Iruk the Yen of Chacht Erachor, Agasuligum, a Machan Shaw, Gurfeder Echor, Inuik Kart, Len of Winterfein. Skilti, Fis, Turmi. Tashe Dochretche, Nach Vetok, Ara, Igornamion, and Kestian Echo. Vien Talam again Omgrev, Orkar Nrachtum. Find us on all the usual podcast platforms. Yeah, having my head shoved into the uh, steps of the Ulster Bank in Ranla, called but of a gun put into the back of your skull, that's a moment where you go, okay, yeah, I think this one's up. How does a high-flying academic become one of Ireland's most prolific bank robbers? What I would see is the most important part of this still lies open. I'm Not Here to Hurt You, a brand new series from the award-winning team behind the Indo Daily. That November day, that's where it all, all begins. Out now, wherever you get your podcasts. They were O'Driscoll, Morgan, extra man, it's Fitzgerald, oh Fitzgerald is coming back inside! Leicester have another! Darcy O'Driscoll through the legs, Rob Carney, out to Fitzgerald again, step and score! Well, after a slow start to the URC, the South African franchise has come roaring back after getting the Irish, Scottish and Welsh sides on home soil. They have won 18 of their 20 games on the high veld so far for a 90% win ratio, which is a good deal higher than the 30% they managed in the Northern Hemisphere earlier in the season. So tonight on the left wing, we're doing a deep dive into South African rugby. We're going to be joined in a little bit by South African rugby journalist AP Cronje, who's going to give us a lowdown on the Bulls, the Sharks, the Stormers and the Lions as they look towards the knockout stages. But for now, on the Left Wing Podcast, Will Slattery here with Luke Fitzgerald, as always. And Luke, it's been an interesting weekend or last weekend of rugby. You know, we talked a lot about Ulster last week with Jonathan Bradley and how they had to bounce back and how it was a vital game against Munster. Then they go and get turned over at home for the second time in less than a week. Now they're staring down the barrel of a very disappointing season. They've already slipped outside the home, kind of quarterfinal places in the league. Very tough defeat for them on Friday night. There was always a fear with, you know, you know, Vermeulen even talking after the game, saying, you know, it might take guys a long time to get over that. Um, you just need to move on quickly. And I thought it was actually the perfect fixture for them. You know, Munster coming to town, uh, that's a big rivalry uh, against a very, very strong team who played very well against Exeter, you know, coming off... You know, a, a very you know very positive week. Um, so I thought that they'd have enough in the tank to kind of get themselves back up for the game. You know, didn't prove to be the case, and I think they can be very very disappointed. And they put themselves in a very challenging position, having been you know, I, I mean they were they were they've had such a strong league showing up until this point. Well, like they've, they've just really fallen away, and the season now doesn't look like. I don't think it'll look like a positive season now if, if, if things don't go well and the qualifiers for them. I think they're better than what they're showing. Um, you know, I think they did look, they took an opportunity to have a look at Larry at 10. And I can understand that. I think we, we talked about Will Addison coming back. <laughs> He's been injured for so long that we probably hadn't really been considering him. But also, you know, Stockdale to come back in at some point. No, obviously not this season. Well, maybe not this season. Um, but they have so many back, uh, you know, backfield options that they're kind of saying, well, how do we get Larry into this team? Um, you know, once all the stars are back in there, will you know? So, 
Uh, that didn't really work out for them. You know, I thought Madigan looked good when he came on, and I was kind of thinking, you know, would it have been better to, to have kept Larry in, in that comfortable position at 15 and have Madigan, who's so used to playing there at 10, um, and look like that kind of mistake. No, it wasn't the only reason, but it might have been one of the reasons why maybe, uh, you know, they didn't look as comfortable and, and, and they didn't play well, really, and, and allowed Munster to come at them, um, you know, in the Kingspan. And, and, and I thought they looked comfortable winning it. So, uh, yeah, season is hanging in the balance and they've made it very difficult for themselves now in the closing couple of weeks. Yeah, it's funny how, you know, much can change in two weeks. Yeah, like Munster were getting all the questions. Their coaching staff was up in the air. They had lost to Exeter in the first leg. It looked like they were going to be the ones slipping down the league table. Now, all of a sudden, the coaching staff is nailed down. Looks like Dennis Feamy could be joining as the defence coach. There's talk about getting Mike Prendergast, the attack coach, which I think a lot of uh, Munster fans would be very happy with that coaching staff. Now they're up to third in the table. They're you know, Toulouse in the quarterfinals, things are looking up. Because it's funny, I, I heard Brian O'Driscoll off the ball before the Ulster-Munster game, and he was asked, who's the second best team after Leinster in the Irish pecking order? And he said Ulster. And this was before the game, obviously. And I was thinking, this last Friday was one of the first times in a while we've actually gotten a full strength or close to it Ulster-Munster game. Ordinarily, it comes to the point in the season where like the away team is maybe resting a few players. And we very rarely, I think, get to see them go head-to-head with like two strong teams. So it was an interesting uh, kind of even battle for that kind of maybe pecking order place just behind Leinster as well. It is, I think. And um, it was an intriguing affair. It really was. And I thought, you know, I actually thought Carberry, who, you know me, like, I mean, I, I still, I, you know, I'm not going to go on about where I think his best position is, but he was really, really good. Um, you know, I think I'll be fairly clear about where I, where I think his future should be. But God, I thought he played brilliantly um, and controlled the game well. Like his passing was so crisp. Um, and I was really pleased for him because he's look, he's a lovely guy too. And uh, it was just good to see him go well. And Munster were purring, you know, they looked like they, they looked dangerous, you know, they were, um, and they looked very much, as I said, I hate to repeat myself, but in control of the game up, up in the Kingspan, which is not something that I think, you know, you'd see out of lots of teams going up there. So, um, yeah, I think, you know, things have turned around. It is funny, like, I mean, even it's, it's great that we're having AP on the show this evening because, you know, I don't think I'd looked at the table properly for quite a while. I, I didn't realize really until I was going on to watch the, the, the on Premier Sports to do Leinster v. the Sharks. Just how, just just the position that the South African teams have kind of found themselves in off the back of a kind of late run of form. Um, but Munster are probably in that bracket too. I mean, two weeks, like how different uh, does the does the end of the season look for them at this stage? Now they go in, you'd have to think being, you know, a, a team that, that the teams will not want to play against. Um, so, yeah, it's amazing. And Ulster from, again, a very strong position in the league, now looking a little bit kind of shaky. Um, and we're not so sure about where, you know, what their season, what the close of their season will look like. Just on the Leinster Sharks game, you know, obviously it was a, a very different Leinster team, which changed Leinster team. A lot of the internationals were left at home. And even Ronan Callagher had to pull out with a shoulder injury. And I actually think he probably won't be fit, maybe potentially for the Leicester game. I know he's gone back to Dublin from South Africa to get uh, some uh, his shoulder looked at. But um, you know, any young players in particular jump out at you in terms of, you know, that cauldron? You know, Tommy O'Brien was someone I was very impressed with. I thought he had a really strong game. And I think he's had a really good season as well. Like anyone that kind of caught your eye? I thought Frawley played brilliantly. Um, the crossfield kick was the highlight, but he had loads of nice touches. Um, you know, I thought... Um, I mean, I thought Reese Ruddock had a big, a big performance in there. He's just so solid, isn't he? Like, well, I, he's know made you, for I know South you want African me. Beef, like. I know you want me to say a young gun. Uh, I thought Tommy looked very good. I mean, geez, he's got great finishing ability, doesn't he? I mean, when he went inside from that crossfield kick, I was thinking, okay, 
you know, you got to look for support here. But he pinned the ears back, very similar to that try he got up in um, in the sports grounds, uh, you know, a couple of weeks ago. Like he just, when he pins the ears back, he's, he looks really, really quick. And he's got great footwork and he looks like he's up for the fight as well. There was a lovely chase off a kick earlier in the game where he put, um, I'm not sure if it was Fassi in touch, but it was one of the, the Sharks players in touch from the kick chase. And he was up in his face and he was a little bit niggly. And I was thinking, you know what? Really like the look of this guy. So uh, I thought that was very positive. Um, you know, when I thought just to come in on one player to get your opinion on, you know, Harry Byrne, it was obviously a, a big opportunity for him and probably didn't take it as much as he would have liked. And he's a guy who obviously was involved in Ireland camps, you know, throughout the last maybe six months, eight months or so from last summer. Um, but hasn't maybe kicked on as much as, as people would have hoped this year. He was being talked about as a potential, you know, backup behind Johnny Sexton, but you know, what have you made of the way he's been playing when he has got the opportunities? I know there's been a few injuries, but, you know, when he actually has got on the field. Uh, look, I'm really reluctant to be too critical of him. He's kind of suffered with injuries. I think he looks like, um, you know, he's playing in a position that you need to play in week in, week out. Um, and he's now in danger of kind of being in that position where he's just going to be cruising and training every week. Um, you know, not playing many games or not playing many of the big games. And look, that's a virtue of, you know, the, of course, the competition there. And no, I think Johnny will get all the big games when he's fit. But Ross Byrne has been brilliant, like really, really good, really tidy, running the game well. Um, he, I'm amazed that Ireland haven't even con- looked like they've considered him. Um, you know, he just seems to have been completely stricken from the record um, based off a few bad performances. But that's that's where he finds himself now. And I think Frawley, you know, has that little bit more bulk and that little bit more experience that he can drop into that 12 spot and get a little bit more rugby. But I think the two of them now find find themselves in a position where they're not going to get enough rugby to really further their careers and get to th- get themselves into that international fold. Um and it's a tricky one. I don't, I, I, you know, I'm not sure what I'd be advising them at this point. Um, you know, we know Johnny is going to be retiring, but, you know, that's still a long way away. And, you know, careers come and go quickly. You miss your window and, you know, it's very hard to catch up again. So, yeah, he, he needs to seriously think about that. I, I still feel like he looks like he has a lot of physical development to do. He looks a little bit young and a little bit soft. Not Sorry, not soft in the mind or anything like that, but just doesn't look like he's got a, a pro rugby player's body thus far and he's actually got quite a big frame um so there's good potential for a good athlete there i think um so look he still has some developing to do with i do get the point that he hasn't kicked on and we're all very hopeful of that but um you know i think he needs more rugby simple as and um you know that was very difficult fixture as well i mean that's sharks pack i mean from the line out and scrum i mean poof the, the weight, the sheer weight of that pack. I mean, that's going to be a, a difficult fixture for anyone, but that Leinster pack wasn't that small. There was a few young guys in there, but there was still enough, uh, you know, weight in there to deal with that, uh, or, or experience, I'd say, in, in a lot of positions, particularly when Al Alatoa came on, um, to deal with it. And I didn't think they dealt with that weight very well. Now, there was two young locks in there, but they're still good players and big guys. Um, so, look, yeah, there was a bit of, there's a bit of learning out of that. And I think Ross, it made it, did make it difficult for the backs, I think, to really impose themselves on a game and play with lots of time in the ball because the line speed and the way that that Sharks pack, I think, was difficult for, for, for a young guy to, to play really great, and particularly when he hasn't played much rugby. So there's a lot of mitigating factors, Will, is probably what I'm getting at. I wouldn't be giving up on him just yet, but, you know, he has to, you have to create a sense of urgency in your mind, and, and I hope he is doing that because if you don't get the rugby you know, training reps won't get you to the to the Irish team. That's for sure. Yeah, and he's maybe another opportunity this weekend against the Stormers, who are currently second in the table, so it won't get any easier. But again, another really good opportunity. And you have to give credit where it's due to Connacht as well. The only Irish team thus far to get a win on South African soil. They beat the Lions in Ellis Park, an iconic venue. 
uh, with the late penalty as well. So after they Andy made French, such difficult work of it, didn't they? Their I defense. Know, they well, like, it wouldn't they... be Connacht if there wasn't a few dramas, you know. <laughs> I was looking at it like even like Bundy Aki was missing tackles and stuff like and he had an unbelievable game like he, he the, the the try he set up uh, where he bounced off the tackle and went, like and spun like unbelievable bit of play but then he was like missing like you know he needs to be I, I like you need those players to be making those tackles that, like that's Connacht's big problem is that and he missed a few against Leinster as well in the big game you know in in, in the return fixture in the Aviva so yeah like he was great he was brilliant going forward but like he's a great tackler. Like he needs to be leading from the front. And I think they need a bit of that. Um, I was delighted that they got the win. It's been a tough couple of weeks for them. I mean, the back-to-backs were Len- like, that was always going to be difficult, that back-to-back with Leinster. And I think that was a little bit disheartening, that return fixture, wasn't it? I mean, they got fairly pumped badly. Um, so that's a big bounce back win and delighted for them. I think they are they the only team to win. I think they're, are they, I'm going to say, are they the only team? No, Edinburgh, Edinburgh beat, yeah. beat the Lions, I think, but, I think that's only the second victory from from a team down in South Africa thus far. So, like, they can be very proud of that. And there's something that they can build from, even though their defense, like, if you were supporting them, they would be driving you crazy. <laughs> but, um, look, they still got the win, so we can't be too critical. Yeah, and it'll be a tough outing against the Sharks as well this weekend. You know, Emma Pimpy uh, will be one player that they're going to have to keep an eye on for sure. And while we're on the subject of South Africa, we're delighted to welcome South African rugby journalist AP Cronje to the show. AP, how are you? Yeah, very well, thanks. Thanks so much for having me on, guys. No, our pleasure. Good time to have you on as well with the former South African teams. You know, it's it's funny, at the start of the tournament when results maybe weren't quite as good, I remember seeing a few people from South Africa on Twitter saying, you know, wait till we get you down the high veld, the Springboks will be back, you know, it'll be a different story. 18 wins and two defeats on home soil, 90% win ratio kind of says its own story, doesn't it? Like, how smug are South African supporters now that they've gotten to kind of show what these teams are made of? Yeah, well, I mean, I think we're sitting pretty at the moment, to be honest with you. Um, I'll be honest, I didn't expect it to be quite as drastic a shift as it was. I mean, obviously, everyone was, as you were saying, you know, they're saying, oh, we can't wait to get you on our, you know, on our turf at Highfeld in the summer sun and, you know, battle it out in our conditions with our top stars back. But but even still, you know, particularly I was looking at, the, you know, the Bulls and Lions because they went on the tour of the North with the same pretty much amount of Springboks that they have in the team now, which is close to zero. <laughs> um, so... I wasn't expecting them to perform quite as well as they have done on their home patch, but, you know, obviously delighted with the performances so far and particularly the Stormers who have, you know, really shown a lot of dominance towards the back end of the season and seem to be on a bit of a march. Yeah. Would you be able to give us just a little bit of a synopsis of the four teams? You know, I think a lot of people watching might remember them from their Super Rugby days, the Bulls obviously in that great team that won a couple of titles, but with COVID, uh, you know, the upheaval and all that, like people mightn't be exactly familiar with, kind of where they are even off the field as well as on the field. Like if you could just give us kind of a little snippet of what, what the four teams, where they kind of are in the pecking order. Yeah, no, definitely. I mean, going into the competition uh, this year, sort of URC, the Bulls had pretty much been dominant in South African domestic rugby for the past uh, three seasons. If I had to hazard a guess, uh, yeah, about that time period. When Jake White came in and took over the team, you know, they'd gone through a succession of coaches, including John Mitchell, who was there for all of about, you know, a month. Um, they'd had Franz Ludica before. So they were in a bit of a tricky spot in terms of trying to find their their identity. Uh, and when Jake White came over, he, he sort of top to bottom, changed the coaching, changed the outlook, and, and they sort of went on a march from there on in. So they dominated everything there was to win in South African domestic rugby. Um, they won the, the old super rugby competition when it was just in a weird sort of COVID situation. It was just South African teams playing the one, the Curry Cup, the under 21 and under 20 competitions. So the Bulls have sort of been South Africa's 
primary domestic rugby team for the last two, three years uh, and sort of hope to carry that form forward into the URC. And to that extent, possibly they've underperformed relative to you know their domestic strength. The Stormers, on the other hand, have had a litany of off-field problems. Western Province Rugby is a constant battle between the professional arm of the union and the amateur arm of the union. The amateur arm runs a hell of a lot of the show, which has had some, some issues, some well-documented issues financially. The move away from Newlands Rugby Stadium to where they now are in Cape Town Stadium has been as a result of almost financial neglect. Um, so they've had a lot of off-field dramas, but really the man at the root of their success is John Dobson as head coach. He's managed to keep um, a core of players together despite big departing names, you know, Siokalisi, Bongi Mbanambi, and a lot of other guys like, you know, Jano Augustus, who's now tearing up for Northampton Saints in the Premiership. So they've had a big exodus, um, but they've managed to retain a core group of players and credit to John Dobson, because I don't think anybody expected the Stormers, at least no one within South Africa expected the Stormers to be quite, where they are, um, you know, second on the log is a fantastic achievement for them. Um, and then obviously we come to the Sharks and Lions. The, the Sharks have, you know, all, all the names and, and then some, you know, <laughs> with the Rock Nation and the partnership that they've had and the financial injection that they've had as a result of that, you'd have expected them to, to be in a very, very strong position. And sometimes they have, they've been able to turn it on at times, but, but other times it's just not quite clicked for them. Uh, whether that's a result of coaching or whether it's as a result of the players not quite gelling, you know, we're not, we're not sure. And I think actually the, the recent game against Leinster is a really good example of that. Um, they, they looked dominant in phases and yet at the very end had to sort of scrape a win against a, a sort of a, not, not a Leinster B side exactly, but very much not, not this, the Leinster team we can expect to see in the knockouts. So as far as the Sharks are concerned, a lot of star power, <laughs> a lot of, you know, big names in that side, but it's not quite, quite there for them yet um it'd be interesting to see if they get into the knockouts how they go there and then the lions have performed pretty much where i think most of south african teams have been expecting them to perform they've been in a an almost constant state of rebuild since Johan ackerman and, and space the brain left um that was their sort of glory days towards the the latter end of super rugby they were in three finals uh, unfortunately couldn't come away with silverware but had a very strong team where you know fafta clark was at the core of that and Players like Franco Mostert were there as well. Uh, they've been on a bit of a dip there. They've not quite had the same access to, to players and talent as the other South African sides. And they're performing about where we would have expected them to. God, I feel like I got it. I got the lower. Well, that was everything. really, I was, I was just going to say, that was a big question, Will. I was like, that was, pre that was pretty impressive, Andre. Uh, <laughs> I'm not going <laughs> to lie. You were thrown straight in the deep end. Look, I, I will say, just to, to tally in on top of that, we did, I suppose, expect there to be a bit of a rally in the second half of the competition. Um, you know, myself and Will were kind of talking about that at the start of the year when um, things did look a little bit bleak, um, but it's been really impressive. In my, my own experience playing rugby in South Africa versus playing the South African team in uh, Dublin, very, very different experiences. It's a, I mean, it's the best place, I think, you can go and play a game of rugby. Also the most ferocious, I think. And uh, I think we're seeing a bit of that now. And it's great for the competition. I mean, I think there's certainly at the start was a lot of chatter and a lot of doubt about, you know, whether this was going to be something viable. And maybe there is another step to go in terms of, you know, including the national team in the Six Nations at some point, if that's, you know, if that's doable, if there's appetite. I think there's certainly appetite in South Africa for that. But 
I, I think this competition is really heating up now. I don't know what the vibe is like on the ground. I mean, is there, I mean, I don't think anyone would want to go down to South Africa to play, uh, you know, in, in the, uh, in the qualifying fixtures to get to the final. I mean, how are you guys confident at this, at this point, you've got to be pretty confident. Yeah, I think there's definitely definitely a confidence which is sort of going through the fan base now. I think that it was easy to be a bit gloomy after the opening, you know, four rounds after, you know, the touring teams were pretty pretty well dispatched. But I think now that there's been a bit of a run of form, there's a definite sense of confidence. I think particularly among Stormers supporters because they're the most likely to have a, a sort of a home quarter final and semi-final. Uh, and they sort of would back themselves in their home conditions. But I mean, I'll just touch upon a point you made earlier in terms of that there's a bit of feeling now in the competition. And I think it's great to see. I mean, that comp- the, the game against Leinster between the Sharks, was, it was pretty fiery at times. And I think some of those sort of rivalries are being stoked a bit, um, which this early, you know, in the first iteration of the competition, I think is a very positive thing to see. And I think it's only... Only, only bodes well for the future. Yeah, and when, when the competition first came together, what was the view amongst like Sharks fans, Stormers fans? Obviously, Super Rugby was such a, a big brand for so long. You know, was this something that people were excited about in South Africa? Was it kind of a needs-must thing where they didn't really have many other options? Like, what, what were kind of rugby supporters thinking? Obviously, the union were kind of pushing it, but were, were fans happy to see this come together as well? Yeah, I'd, I'd say they absolutely were. I think um, Super Rugby was obviously the bedrock of, of what you'd watch as the premier club competition uh, for South African fans. But since about 2014-15, it was sort of on the wane. Um, the, the competition in its final form was a bit of a behemoth in terms of being structured over, I think it was 12 or 14 time zones, um, three or four different conference systems, it became so convoluted and fans became uninterested almost as a result of that. Uh, so I think that there was also a pretty fractious relationship between the South African Rugby Board and, and the Australian Rugby Board and the Kiwi Rugby Board as well. So those gaps were then eventually widened by COVID and eventually that all in all it just told and the competition sort of fell apart. So in one sense, it was a needs-must thing. Um, I think Saru was in a position where they'd been expelled from Super Rugby. Um, they say New Zealand made that decision unilaterally. New Zealand says that it was a decision of South Africa to move north. The truth, obviously, is probably somewhere in between. Um, but either way, whether it's needs-must or not, I think there was very much an appetite amongst the South African rugby audiences for something new, something exciting. Uh, there was a growing resentment, I think, towards Super Rugby um, amongst a pretty sizable proportion of the fan base. Uh, and I think it was just, it was amazing. I mean, initially it was obviously the Rainbow Cup, which gave us a bit of a flavor of it, but really the URC, I think, has gone better than, than certainly than I expected. And I think better than most people could have expected. And from a South African perspective anyway, I think uh, it's been really well received. Yeah, Luke, I think it's been a pity that COVID has kind of disrupted it and we've had the South African legs of the of the tours at odd times, like, you know, Leinster going down just before the Champions Cup quarterfinal is disappointing because obviously they, they ordinarily might have brought some of the big heavy hitters down and you could have gotten, like, see Cleesey going up against, you know, Caelan Darce or Jack Cohen, even though it was still a pretty good battle last weekend, to be fair. But when we, when we get, Luke, maybe next year a full run of it, you know, and, you know, maybe less crowd restrictions in South Africa, maybe more atmosphere there as well. There is potential. And the last couple of weeks has kind of made me more kind of hopeful about the future of the league than I might've been certainly at the start. Yeah. Like I think it was probably easy for all of us who love sport to maybe become a little bit disenchanted with just, and I, and I don't think this is just rugby, by the way, I just think with, without, uh, you know, supporters screaming at a match, 
Um, I just didn't realize, I suppose, because I you know I, I'd go to most games, uh, so I'd watch most games on, on television, but it does take away from the atmosphere around the games and the enjoyment. So I think we might have got caught in a bit of a spiral with that when things particularly, you know, in South Africa, where it looked like it wasn't going to end for a while and there's probably still a few restrictions. And um, look, we hope we're at the back end of all of that kind of stuff at this stage. Um, but yeah, it's really caught my imagination the last couple of weeks. Look, I, I do think in South Africa, there's always going to be a challenge with what are amazing stadiums for the national team um, but are kind of cavernous at times in terms of what it looks like uh, when there's only, you know, there might be five or six, seven, eight thousand supporters at a game, but in a stadium that holds 40,000, very similar to what Edinburgh find themselves in in Murrayfield or have found themselves in before this season. Um, you know, that is maybe something that we look to rectify as the competition beds down in South Africa. And hopefully we look at the competition going from strength to strength. We say, do you know what? Um, you know, let, let's try and get a smaller stadium here with maybe 10,000 people that would be rocking for all of the kind of games. You know, you might get six, seven, eight thousand at those games. But even for the big ones, you say, do you know what, for a quarterfinal or a semifinal final, perhaps in, in the future, maybe we do get 30,000 people or 40,000 people in South Africa watching, you know, the, the Lancer team or the Munster team go at a, a Stormers or Sharks or whoever it may be. So um, I think there's definitely scope for that. I've been really caught up in the last couple of weeks of the competition because it just kind of snuck up on me uh, where the South African teams are. I just kind of discounted them saying, well, I think they're, you know, this, this is obviously a difficult period. You know, the, the national team season is still not perfectly synced up. Uh, with with this competition and I'm, we're just not going to see the best of them this year um but I, I feel like i've been completely wrong on that and i'm so excited for the next couple of weeks and it is great to hear from ap that you know the the mood and the ground in south africa is certainly a positive one at this stage um so i'm very very hopeful for the next couple of years well yeah i think it's it's the the competition has an exciting feel about it now yeah, AP, just on the stadium point that Luke made, because that is something that does stand out. Obviously, I know there's been crowd restrictions, but like, you know, playing in like Ellis Park and some of these iconic venues, it, it, are there kind of smaller stadiums that could be utilized? Like, you know, the way like Leinster have the RDS, which is like kind of the ideal size for a lot of these games. It feels like a good atmosphere and like kind of a more intimate venue. Or are the only options available, these kind of big kind of national stadiums that, that are being used at the moment? Well, it's sort of an interesting point, actually, because I think it's you got to look at it in two ways which is firstly, when you look at the heyday of Super Rugby, around 2015, 2014, uh, the Stormers were averaging close to about 35,000 people per game. That's now on average. So, and I think the Lions, yeah, I know, it was sort of 35,000 people upwards, and that was sort of similar across, across the board, really. So I think the administrators in SA haven't quite let go of the idea that they can get back to those numbers. And actually, if you get them in, you know, week in, week out, that would be ideal. So they've not quite wanted to consider moving, you know, that plan of moving, perhaps playing in slightly smaller venues because they're still holding on hope that they can work out a way of getting crowd attendances back up. I know that the Bulls managed to get 22, 23,000 people in uh, to see uh, to see the Ulster game, which was really good. And I think the Sharks last weekend got close to a 20K mark as well. So there, there have been some success stories. Um, and I think that that's very much a focus now in terms of promotional activity but I mean, it's, it's a trend we're seeing sort of throughout rugby and throughout sport that uh, perhaps attendances post-COVID are down a little bit. Um, and I think administrators are trying to find ways of getting people back into stadiums. So, um, so it's, it's a difficult one to say, but at least for the Stormers, um, they do have the Donny Craven Stadium, which is a slightly smaller venue. And they have played one, one game this season there already. 
And for them, there's a possibility of exploring that. And I'm sure there's, you know, if, if they were to look into it, the other sides would have, could do something similar. And that's definitely an idea which I think is being mooted by, by various people. Uh, it's not something which has gained a hell of a lot of traction just as yet, but uh, going forward and depending on where we come down to in terms of crowd size, it could be it could be something that's explored going forward, absolutely. And it is a funny one just to tie in on that point because, you know, there certainly is appetite for, I mean, I think, you know, some of those... Some of those large crowds were supported by very low ticket prices, I think, weren't they, AP, I think? Um, and, you know, that's probably not something that you want either because you do want it to be financially viable for the teams too. Um, but, yeah, look, you know, if people are willing to give their time to it, um, I still think there's demand there. You just probably have to find somewhere in the middle. I think what we've found in Ireland, I think that what's what's worked pretty well you know, Munster will play in Musgrave Park uh, this weekend. Uh, Leinster have moved up, but it's still the, the, the RDS still has a lovely atmosphere uh, if 10,000 people show. Now, I think they might average between, now before COVID, maybe 13,000 per fixture. Um, but I think what happens is when you have a good atmosphere, even if it's a smaller group, um, I think that word kind of spreads a bit. I also feel like the teams generally perform better when there's a better atmosphere in the stadium, the home teams, that is. Um, and once you kind of build those two things, a good experience for the supporters, a winning team, I feel like for the bigger games, you can kind of market them a little bit better and get your, you know, 30, 40,000 people. I think that's what's worked well in Ireland. Um, interesting to see if that's something that pops up because I just think an empty stadium, um, even if the number is actually good, still doesn't look great. Um, so it, interestingly, I think Edinburgh have had some really good pay with it as well. I mean, that's been a real positive for them on that pitch just beside Murrayfield. Um, so yeah, we wait and see on that one. I, I hope that, that they do think about something along those lines, particularly in South Africa where they're sports mad. There was, there'll have to be some options around where there might be so, a smaller stadium. So we wait and see on that one. It's just an interesting point I thought I'd ask. And uh, good to hear Will's interested in that too, because... I mean, I just think, you know, we, we the Irish teams particularly have needed another country, another set of teams in this competition badly because we rely on this um, but haven't got really much action from the other countries thus far. Uh, it's been fairly dominated by the Irish teams, really. So good to see the South African teams up there. We hope uh, they continue to flourish in, a, in in the competition. Yeah, one question as well, like AP, like how important is it to have games in like a similar time zone as well? Like you mentioned Super Rugby, you know, New Zealand time zone, obviously, you know, 12 hours, the difference, like some games would have been probably on in the middle of the night for South Africans or very early in the morning, you know, not ideal for building fan bases or building interest or sustaining interest. Like how vital is that? Or, or has there been kind of an increase in interest or enthusiasm to have more games at like kind of a, an easy time zone to watch? Yeah, absolutely. Without a shadow of a doubt. It's it's really funny. I was having a conversation um, earlier this week with someone on Twitter and um he tweeted something which I, I'm still laughing about today. He said, listen, I'm 45 years old. I'd rather lose to Leinster at 6 p.m. on a Friday than lose to the Crusaders at 3.40 a.m. on a Saturday morning. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, so, no, I mean, uh, I, I think that from, from, from a time zone perspective, that was one of the things that absolutely counted against Super Rugby. And, and uh, from a South African fan base, it's now so brilliant to have it aligned. Uh, and also in terms of touring teams, you know, you don't have that jet lag. A flight to South Africa, you know, you sort of leave 8 p.m. in the evening, you arrive the next morning, 7 a.m., and, and you're sort of not, not as jet-lagged and you're, you're ready to go. So I think touring is easier. Um, I think that for fans, it's easier, and for administrators, it's easier to structure to structure a tournament like that. And I think it's, it's shown, you know, the, 
the USC release figures today and, and the and the viewership has been really, really strong and encouraging. And now partially that will obviously be the boost with the South African TV audiences. But anecdotally, from the conversations I've been having, um, people seem to be watching or South African fans seem to be watching more URC um, non-South African teams than they did uh, Super Rugby non-South African teams. So hopefully, again, that's a trend which continues into the future. Yeah, yeah, I think definitely. it's easier. It's easier to have an excuse to have a bra and a beer at, uh, as you say, yeah. seven p.m. than maybe three forty a.m. Yeah, <laughs> you exactly. might have to continue on from the night before. Um, yeah. <laughs> and not altogether a bad thing, but look, I think it is. I mean, the, having spoken to a few of the South African players, of course, financially, you know, coming up to Europe makes a big difference. Uh, you know, coming back to South Africa with a few euro in your pocket versus the rand, but. Um, you know, I do think the time zone difference is a massive feature of why some of those players have left the South African game. So hopefully we might see even a few of the big stars maybe come back as well. Um, maybe just another point to, to add to that. Sorry to interrupt you, Will. You had a question in mind. No, yeah. Like, AP, how, how like realistic is it? Do you think that some of the big names who are currently in Europe might, might come back and be tempted to come back to South Africa? You know, now that they are in the URC, there might be a little bit more money to, to entice them back because, you know, some, some massive names obviously operating in, in France and in England. Yeah, no, absolutely. It's an interesting question. I think, um, I mean, obviously the big one so far this season is Evan Etzebet, who's coming back to the Sharks. So that's a huge coup. Um, but I think that, you know, there's been talk about Luet de Yaga. There's been talks about the, the Dupree twins. And although it seems more likely that they're going to go back to uh, or go to Japan, I'm not sure where the Dupree twins are going, if they're even coming. It's all still speculation, but at this point, it, it, it's, it's very early days. And hopefully it's the the tournament, you know, gets into a few iterations and South Africa becomes a bit more financially stable, their teams. I mean, because ultimately, as everywhere in the world, they were absolutely poleaxed by COVID. So hopefully if they can build a bit of financial clout, they can start actually, you know, luring these types of players back. Um, and I think as well, you know, a lot of a lot of players leave South African shores because they, they want that European challenge um, and they want to play at the highest level in European rugby as well. So if that's something that South Africa sides can offer by qualifying for Europe via the URC, I think that's another another key, I suppose, carrot to, to, to keep them in, in South Africa. Yeah, Luke, because that's an interesting point AP makes about, you know, European qualification. There's three South African teams, obviously, in the top eight at the moment. So we're going to have probably a few of them in the Champions Cup next year, which is kind of another step towards you know, integrating them into European rugby. But it'll also add like an interesting wrinkle into European competitions as well. The traveling in South Africa as well is, is another thing. Yeah, and, and interestingly enough, the uh, well, I hope that they keep the two legs for um, for a few of the fixtures as well. I mean, going out to South Africa, I, I mean, I just don't think I can overstate it enough how difficult it is to go and win in some of those places. Like, it's really, really challenging. So, like, I think something like that would be brilliant for the competition, and I'm really looking forward to seeing them in that as well. So, um, yeah, I mean, look, touring, I think, as well, it's one of the fantastic things about rugby, I think, um, you know, they'll experience player. I'm just looking at some of the young guys who are going down to play now in South Africa. Like that is such an amazing experience to go and, and, and play professional rugby down there. I think it really, you know, I, I felt in my own career while I got injured kind of shortly afterwards, I learned so much and came on so much as a player uh, from that tour. And I think we'll have loads of young guys coming back for our own game with, you know, enhanced reputations and experiences. And I think it'll only have, and plus, professional rugby is a bit you know it, it can be a bit business-like now i think they'll get to go like i saw some of the guys out in their instagrams they're out fishing they're out you know experiencing new things they're all great things and i think getting people outside the setups out of the bubbles um 
you know, I would have just loved for this to have been part of the fixture list as a player. And that's probably where I'm coming from. I mean, I was really, you know me, Will, I was fairly bullish on this early, you know, from, from the start. And, and it was based off my experiences that I had out in that country. I just think it's a beautiful, beautiful place. Um, so I think, um, yeah, uh, I, I think it's great. I think there's loads of great things coming out of this. And, you know, it's not that challenging given the time zone differential as well, um, you know, versus, say, the other teams, which, I mean, you'd love to have a kind of a globalized, I would love to see some kind of globalized club competition, but I'm not actually sure that that's really that doable. It's very challenging with the with, with the time zone differences, you know, to get a level playing field as such. So, um, yeah, very positive on, on everything that I've seen so far. And I'm just delighted that everyone's getting to experience. And I think the supporters, by the way, which we probably haven't mentioned, South Africa is such a great place to go and visit for them too. Like financially, you know, it's a cheap place to go. Um, you know, there's so much great stuff to see alongside of the rugby. So I think what we'll get is probably a bit more of a back and forth between both countries as well. Um, and I think the supporters will really benefit, uh, benefit from it as well. So uh, there's lots of positives, I think. Yeah, and say hopefully they might make the final there next year. I know it was mooted for this year, which is probably a bit too premature, but if they give people enough notice for kind of a year in advance, you know, you could get a lot of people booking trips to South Africa. Which There'll I be monster people... lads there, no doubt. <laughs> they seem to get uh, get uh, tickets for every single final miles away, yeah. <laughs> uh, APS, is one thing that hasn't been maybe as positive, and I've seen a lot of South Africans reacting on Twitter to it, is, is the ORC officiating and some of the rules and some of the maybe differences in interpretations. I know, especially at the start when results weren't going as well, maybe... It was a bone of contention. Is that something that South Africans have been focusing on a lot? Has it been markedly different to what they've been used to? Welcome to our hell, AP. <laughs> yeah, no, I have to tread very carefully about how I, how I answer this one. No, I think that um, I think the URC and, and officiating, even in its pro-rugby iterations, has always been contentious, to, to, to give it a word. It's been been tricky um but then i'd also i'd also say on the flip side of that from south africans south africans um do love a bit of a complaint about the referee and i'll stick my hands up and say that i'm the i'm I'm the first to sometimes indulge in that myself perhaps a bit too often so um partly i think there is some some valid complaints and i do think that there is still a way to go uh, in terms of addressing some of the inconsistencies and officiating and, and to their credit, the URC organizers have, have come out and said as much. And I think the, the appointment of Tapa Yening uh, as, the, as the sort of the head of the, the referees now of the URC, I think is a very, very positive move, moving in the right direction, I think at least, to have someone in that position who over, oversees it. Um, obviously, as, as fans, often people, people want accountability, but it's sometimes not quite as straightforward as that. So I, I hope it's a process. Uh, I think that there have been some moments of inconsistency. And I mean, if you're an Ulster fan, you're probably screaming at the moment, you know, we had a, we had a win stolen from us, which uh, you know, I feel for them because I think it's probably true. Um, so swings and roundabouts, I think that it, it kind of all equals out in the end. But having said that, I, I think that it's an area to address. It's something that all fans, not just South Africans, do feel quite passionate about. Uh, and hopefully, uh, hopefully over the coming seasons, we can see some some improvements. There. I think you have to look at something like the Premiership, which, from my mind, probably produces or has has produced some of the best referees operating today. And part of the reason for that is, as a team, the Premiership rugby referees get together every week in person uh, and have have a debrief and have training together at Twickenham. So, working uh, as a team like that has, has sort of pulled everyone up uh, and improved everyone um, sort of collectively. Whether that's possible in the URC because people are based in different countries is, is a bit more difficult. But 
just to be able to do something similar, perhaps, you know, just online in this age, everyone does everything over Zoom. Um, that would that would be positive as well. I'd, I'd like to see an improvement as a collective, um, but hopefully on the right track. Yeah, look, like, you know, from a URC perspective, like referees coming from what, five different countries, at least, you know, they all have different styles. You know, rugby's different in every country. You know, the English referees, I agree with AP, at the moment are probably the, be- the best. And there's a collection of them who are kind of similar styles. Or, and, you know, I think, re- you know, look at the game in a similar way. Whereas in the URC, you have guys coming from, as I said, a lot of different countries, different interpretations, potentially. Yeah, look, that, that is going to be challenging. But I think, um, you know, it's a work in progress. You know, I think that, there's probably been mistakes, like fairly glaring mistakes, um, you know, from all the different countries, you know, from referees everywhere. So, I mean, um, there was a few dodgy ones in the Leinster game too. I actually thought the referee himself was fantastic and he seems to really, really know the game. I know, I can't remember his name, a young, uh, the Georgian referee. The Georgian guy, yeah. I think he looks really, really good. Seems to really know the rules, have good confidence in himself. So he's one to watch in the future. I think he, he he's made some very positive strides and looks like, all the work that he's been doing and they've been doing with him is, is, is good. Um, the TMO decisions were a little bit funny, I thought. Um, but I think um, overall, I think there, there's, there's been a focus on it. And I think once there's been a focus on it, I think that's all what all the, the supporters and fans can, can, ex- can expect them to do and just keep continually try and improve it. I will say rugby is a very, very difficult sport to referee. I am the same as AP and I think Will, I don't know, Will probably not as much as me, but I moan about the referees quite a lot. It's such a difficult job. And I think, you know, part of why I moan is oftentimes, I think it's how complex the game has become. Um, and I feel like sometimes I don't enforce, like there's almost, there's new rules coming in all the time in rugby where I'm kind of saying there's actually rules for that in place already. We have ways to manage those things already. I just feel like you're not doing that um, and not doing that well enough. And that's probably where the focus should be versus trying to get new rules in place, which I think... Like, I just don't envy them. I think it just, like, if you look at a breakdown, I think every breakdown, you can nearly pick two or three things where you say, mm, you could ping for that. You could ping for, you know what I mean? So it's it's very challenging. And I do feel bad for them in that respect. But I would agree. It looks like, you know, the English union seem to have, um, you know, got their act together. They produce lots of very good referees. And I think, um, you know, most of the referees seem to be, you know, have great clarity in their decision-making and their delivery of, you know, why they are, you know, making certain decisions to the players. And I think that makes for a better product. So yeah, look, continue to work on it. Very challenging though. And um, I don't think it's a quick fix. I'll put it that way. <laughs> and not all their fault. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Uh, just before we finish up, maybe Luke touched on this earlier, like the Springboks and their future and whether it's in the North in the Six Nations or whether it remains in the Rugby Championship. Like what's what's the view down there? Like would South African supporters by and large prefer to see them competing in the Six Nations or do they enjoy... You know, especially those All Blacks tests. You know, those home and away games, which are usually absolute crackers. Uh, it's a, it's, it's a tricky one. It's less, um, less obvious than let's say that the divide was on Super Rugby. I think most people were ready to be done with Super Rugby and to move to the Northern Hemisphere in that sense. I think a lot of South Africans still harbour a lot of fondness for the the quote unquote traditional rivalry against the All Blacks uh, and and also against Australia. So. Uh, it'll be a more tough sell for South Africa to try and, or the South African Rugby Union, if there is any appetite for it in the Six Nations, which, you know, sometimes it's reported that it is, and then it's sort of quickly shut down again. So it's all a bit cloak and dagger at the moment. Uh, I think that if they were to join the Six Nations, I think it, it would make for absolutely fantastic competition. 
trying to sell that to the South Africans in terms of letting go of playing your blacks every year might be very challenging. Obviously, from a South African perspective, what they'll want is some way that they can do both. Whether that's even possible remains to be seen. So I'm sure there'll be a lot of backroom conversations happening and, and the South African rugby administrators, I think, on the, on the whole, have proven themselves to be quite astute. So we'll see which way the wind blows. Um, but I think that it would be very difficult to sell it to the South African fan base to move to the Six Nations if you couldn't also guarantee a, a yearly test, at least against the All Blacks. Where do you stand on an AP? Also a tricky one, I think, personally, because I look at it more, not just from a rugby perspective, but but in terms of aligning um, you know, the international season with the club season with the URC, I think that the move north would be great. I'd love to see South Africa in the Six Nations, but I fully understand some of the arguments against it as well I understand where people are coming from and saying that it, you know it is a European competition in the way that perhaps the URC isn't or shouldn't have to be um, so it's it's a tricky one I and I also look at it to be to be blunt from a commercial and a financial perspective and I think that South African rugby and you know South Africa's economy they kind of need to find ways of generating revenue and the Six Nations is an amazing way to tap into the largest market and uh, you know in rugby uh, so Personally, I wouldn't. I wouldn't be averse to it at all. Uh, I understand that there's kickback from from those in Europe and and probably those in South Africa as well. But if it if it happens, I think that you know maybe two three years down the line we'll we'll look back and go actually it was a brilliant decision and it's it's you know it's really reinvigorated this this tournament. The the one thing I'd hope is that it wouldn't be at the expense of Italy. I, I was I was you know lucky enough to be to be there for Wales versus Italy and and to see that that uh that try um, from Padovani and, and, you know, it was, it was absolutely amazing. And, and just sort of what they needed and I suppose what the tournament needed from an Italian perspective as well. So I'd like to see them, them, you know, stay in the tournament. I wouldn't like to feel that South Africa was coming in at their expense. Yeah, it's certainly an interesting debate. And as I suppose the URC develops and the South African teams going into the Champions Cup happens next season, it will be interesting to see how, how it unfolds. Just before you let you go, AP, maybe pr- predictions for the rest of the season, you know, three South African teams in the top eight, like who do you fancy maybe to go furthest of the three? Yeah, I think um, it's, it's so many permutations. Given that there's you know there's I think about four points between second and and sixth or something ridiculous like that. So it can really go all over the show. I think the Stormers are. are I backed them to 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 pip Leinster this weekend, uh, and I think that they'll finish second on the log. So I think that they'll end up playing probably a Scottish side in in the quarterfinals, and and if they get through that, I think they'll make it to. To the semis, and you know, I actually back them if they're playing a home semi-final to go to go away to uh, to the RDS and play Leinster in the final, or if you're playing at the Aviva, maybe. But I, I'd say that South Africa's best hope is probably the Stormers at this stage. I'd love to see a Leinster Stormers final, all the stars back. It's likely to be in Dublin. I think it'd be an amazing experience. Um, I don't back them to go on and win it. Uh, I'd be surprised if the other two South African sides got through the the quarters if they're playing away. Uh, just because I don't think they quite have that experience in terms of touring away from home and probably in terms of experience within knockouts. It's been a long while since those South African teams have been involved in knockout rugby. But um, but yeah, who, who could count against the Stormers in a, in a final? I think that'd be fantastic. Well, it's supposed to be an absolutely cracking few weeks, but for the moment, AP, that was an absolute education on all things South African rugby. Thanks so much for joining us. No, thanks so much, guys. That's all we have time for on the left wing tonight, but we will be back later in the week with a left wing podcast looking ahead to Ireland's Women's Six Nations finale against Scotland. In the meantime, you can subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or listen on independent.ie. So until next time, thanks for listening and goodbye.